And so if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read both from 1 Kings chapter 17 and two brief verses from Luke chapter 4. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise! Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm going to gather a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, "'What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring to me my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son.' And he said to her, "'Give me your son.' And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And Jesus' words from Luke 4, 25 through 26, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. 
And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we meditate on these, your words to us, that you would speak, that you would minister your promises to us in just the way that you know that we need them this day. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen. As we begin this morning, I want to invite you on an imaginary adventure. 300 years into the future. So go into the DeLorean of your own mind, set it to 2319, and think of what could be for the church, this church, in 300 years. It's a rather dark and dystopian vision, but go with me for a second. The year's 2319, the age of cultural Christianity in the Bible Belt has come and long gone. The age of secular humanism risen and fallen away. And now the world in this age, in the 24th century, has now returned to some of the polytheism of the ancients, of the Egyptians and Romans and Greeks. And in this setting, not only has that polytheism been repopularized, but it's been politicized, and it's taken on a sinister political form. And so as a monotheistic faith, claiming only one God and only one way of salvation, Christianity is now illegal. In fact, everything and everyone associated with Christianity is now targeted for removal. This beautiful church building, including the new addition, has been leveled. Leaders of the church, Christian leaders in business and culture, have been stripped of their homes and families, carried across the deserts of the Southwest, forced into re-education camps in the suburbs of the nation's new capital on the West Coast. In the year 2319, the small remnant of believers there in the re-education camp still gathers to pray, but their prayers are largely questions historical questions like, God, how did we get here? Theological questions like, God, do you really have the power to deliver us? Personal questions like, does God really know me and love me still? The books of First and Second Kings were written to people asking those very questions. Because they were written to people in an incredibly similar circumstance to that imaginary vision of the future. They were written to God's people living in exile across the desert in the city of Babylon, forced from their kingdom in Judah and in Israel, 
Jerusalem, its temple and palaces long destroyed, forced to live in a strange land. And they ask these very profound historical and theological and personal questions. And First and Second Kings, while we don't know who wrote it, we know it was written to them in that time to answer those kinds of questions. And at the center of this pastoral history book stands, towers the prophet Elijah and his ministry. Elijah came in performing miracles, assuring God's people living in exile that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still reigns as king and that he still knows them and loves them as their father. This morning, it's that fatherly side of Elijah's ministry that we see most clearly in this passage in chapter 17. And in the story of Elijah, the widow, and her son, we see a compassionate demonstration of God's grace to the low. The term low is one of the Bible's terms that is used to describe someone who is undeserving and someone who is humble before God. In this passage, it is clear the widow is low. She is of low estate. But in this passage, and through it, we're reminded that we ourselves, too, are low, and God's grace has come to us. The first major thing we see in this passage is, is that God's grace pursues the low. We see God's grace pursuing the low in the story of Elijah being used to feed this woman and her son in verses 8 through 16. Look down with me at verse 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, the widow of Zarephath did not exactly fit the stereotype of one deserving a visit from a great prophet like Elijah. In the eyes of God's people, for God to send Elijah to her would have not only been unexpected, but unthinkable. Why? Well, notice where she lives. She lives outside of the kingdom of Israel in Zarephath, which is a part of the nation of Sidon. Do you know who else came from Sidon? Jezebel. You've heard of her. The wicked queen introducing the practices of Baal into the kingdom of Israel through her political marriage to Ahab. Sidon is not a good place. It is outside the kingdom. It is full of sin. It is far from the Lord. And the author of First Kings makes it clear that not only was this woman an outsider geographically and politically and culturally, but she was not a believer. She didn't know the Lord as her Lord. Verse 12, she says to Elijah, as the Lord your God lives. Clearly, her relationship to the Lord is distant. Secondarily, this woman is considered low because she is weak 
and vulnerable. She's a widow. She's poor. In her poverty, she had the responsibility of a son. She was on the brink, together with him, on the brink of starvation. Elijah literally interrupts her as she is preparing what she believes will be her last meal. Two sticks prepared for her and her son. She says in the last half of verse 12, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So by every religious and cultural and physical and emotional standard, this woman is of low estate, undeserving, broken by sin. And yet it was this woman that God deliberately chose to pursue through Elijah. Another great example of God sending a prophet to outsiders is the story of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? It actually begins with the same first word as Elijah's commissioning to the widow of Zarephath. Remember the beginning of Jonah, arise, go to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against it. But notice what God tells Elijah to do, arise and go to Zarephath and in essence, don't announce judgment, extend grace. Extend grace. Jesus mentions this in Luke 4, mentions how Elijah was sent to extend grace to this woman in particular. Jesus says that Elijah passed over many widows in Israel and in Sidon, but came to this one in particular. And Jesus mentions this in Luke 4 because he, like Elijah, was called by his father on a mission to extend grace to the low. Turn to Luke chapter 4, if you have your Bible with you. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, Jesus comes to a synagogue and he stands to read a scroll, a scroll of Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Jesus reads these words and announces that he has come to fulfill them. Listen to how Jesus describes his mission, to whom Jesus' mission is directed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus quoted Isaiah 61, he actually stopped short of quoting all of verses 1 and 2. The end of Isaiah 61, verse 2, speaks of the Lord's judgment. Jesus stopped short because the day of his judgment has not come yet. In Jesus' day and in this day, it is the day of the Lord's favor and grace, proclaiming liberty to captives like you and me. 
We are the beneficiaries of Jesus' work of good news to the poor, liberty of the captive, sight to the blind, liberty of the oppressed, the Lord's favor. Now, some of you may not readily identify with the woman of Zarephath and the people Jesus is describing in Luke 4. Some of you may say, look, I live in 2019, not 2319. I'm still in the buckle of the Bible belt. I'm in a multi-generational Christian family. I have relatively good health and financial security. I'm not poor or oppressed. But guess what? According to God's Word, you're still of low estate. Even if all of those things are true of you, you are still of low estate. The Bible uses the term low not as a matter of subjective self-perception. It's a matter of who you are in God's holy sight. And who you are in and of yourself is low. A sinner justly deserving his displeasure without hope. Except in God's sovereign mercy and grace. Now some of you on the other hand, may also really resonate with the story of this widow. That the story of your life, one of sin and perhaps unique suffering, has has brought you to the brink of spiritual, physical, and emotional fracture. You may feel deeply your sin and feel deeply a sense of distance from God. And if that's you this morning, I want to tell you this. Don't run from it. Don't hide it. That's a gift from God. In this way, God is in the midst of revealing to you in profound ways a picture of your own spiritual need. And he calls his church to love and care for you, and I hope we're faithful to do it. But for all of us, the awareness of being low, the awareness of our own brokenness and need and and poverty comes only from God and is a gift of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said? Remember how he begins his Beatitudes? Who is blessed in the kingdom of heaven? poor in spirit. That's where Jesus begins. And that's where God brings us by His grace and pursues us there in the realization that we are, like this woman, low. The second big thing we see in this passage is we see God's powerful grace for the low. It's a pursuing grace for the low, but it's also a powerful grace for the low. You see this in the story of Elijah raising the widow's son from death to life at the end of chapter 17. Look down with me at verse 19. Look at the description that the author gives of this healing miracle and notice how personal and physical Elijah's engagement with this boy is. Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. 
And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. In this miracle, Elijah draws near in identifying with the woman and her son. He carries him in his arms. He lays him on his own bed. He, in his prayer, joins her in expressing real frustration with God and what he has allowed to happen, and yet also real confidence that God is able to revive the son. He lays on him three times as if to symbolize the impartation of his life to the boy in self-giving and sacrifice. Of all the mighty acts of God in the Old Testament, this is arguably top ten. It's the first time someone's gone from death to life in the Scriptures, and also in all of recorded history. It's the first time. Now, it's not a resurrection. It's a resuscitation. The resurrection comes at the last day when Jesus glorifies us, but He goes from real, true death into life again. Now, miracles like this don't ordinarily occur. They don't even ordinarily occur in the Scriptures. There are many miracles spread throughout the pages of the Bible, but they're found in clusters. They're largely found in clusters in three specific clusters of redemptive history when the needs of God's people were incredibly profound and significant. First, they're found in the story of the Exodus. Second, in the story of Elijah and Elisha. And then third, in the ministry of Jesus. So why did God choose to reveal His power over death, in particular, at this time? In this cluster of miracles through the prophet Elijah, well, He did it to disrupt and fracture the idolatry growing among His people in Israel. He did it to gain their attention, to return their eyes to Him, because evil in Israel was at its peak through its most wicked king, Ahab. Why did God choose to reveal His power over death to this widow's son? Well, we don't exactly know why she in particular was the object of God's powerful grace, but we do know its effect she was brought from spiritual death to life. Do you notice how the story ended? Verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. 
in Mendelssohn's Elijah, which we'll hear in two weeks, there is a song that records the exchange between Elijah and the widow in this scene of prayer and healing. The widow sings mournfully. She sings, I go mourning all the day long. I lie down and weep at night. See my affliction. Be thou the orphan's helper. Help my son. There is no breath left in him. And then Elijah sings, Turn unto her, O Lord my God, turn unto her. O turn in mercy, in mercy help this widow's son, for thou art gracious and full of compassion and plenteous in mercy. And then in the song, God raises the son, and then they conclude with this beautiful duet. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, love him with all thine heart. And the woman then personalizes it and sings, and with all my soul and with all my might, O blessed are they who fear him. God's mighty acts are not meant merely to relieve us of circumstantial suffering. God's mighty acts are meant to grab our attention and draw us to saving faith in him as he did for this widow, as he did through Jesus' ministry to so many outsiders and oppressed. I began this morning by inviting you to imagine that this church was destroyed. And I want to conclude by inviting you to see and appreciate the existing church, which still stands, to see and appreciate it in a new way. Yesterday, I was here in the afternoon um, to get a copy of the bulletin and also to practice. I don't ordinarily speak in front of a thousand people. It can be nerve-wracking. So I came into practice, and I walked through the door, and the room was dark. And do you know what I first noticed? Do you know what's most obvious in this room when it's dark? Let's try it. I know we had some darkness earlier, and that was unplanned, <laughs> but we're planned for this. So let's lower the lights. And what kids, I know a lot of you are in here this morning, kids, what is most obvious when the lights go down? Let's make it even darker if we can. What becomes, what grabs your attention? It's the windows, right? The windows to each side and behind in the balcony, the windows become obvious and beautiful. You probably hadn't noticed them this morning. And yesterday afternoon, the sun was shining even brighter than it is now. It was streaming through that beautiful rose window in the balcony. And I noticed for the first time that our sanctuary is set in the context of biblical history, beginning with the pre-incarnate word and the creation of the world the Pentateuch, historical books, poets, prophets, gospels, the book of Acts, the epistles, and Revelation. It's interesting. And then I began thinking about how it was that when it's dark, the story of the Bible comes to life. Metaphorically speaking, built into the architecture of this place, we remember that when life is at its darkest, and most bleak, as it was for this woman, 
the promises of God shine the brightest. Because there we see and remember how deep our need is and how powerfully God has met those needs in Jesus Christ. I can bring the lights back up again and encourage you to look at the backside of your bulletin. There's a quote from Matthew Henry's commentary on Elijah that says this, thinking of brightness shining into the darkness of Israel's circumstances. It says, never was Israel so blessed with a good prophet as it was when so plagued with a bad king. Never was a king so bold to sin as Ahab. Never was a prophet so bold to reprove and threaten as Elijah, whose story is full of wonders. Scarcely any part of the Old Testament history shines brighter than this history of the spirit and power of Elijah. It's a beautiful way of expressing it. God shining the brightness of His reality and His power and His grace into a generation that had turned away from Him. Grace even for outsiders. Now, that quote by Henry is great, but we can do one better, the Apostle Paul. The end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul reminds us that we are of low estate. In God's sight, we are undeserving. We are humbled. And do you know the result of realizing our poverty and our lowness before God? Paul says that's the thing that fixes our eyes on Jesus and increases not only the comfort we have in God, but the worship and praise that we owe to Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." When we see that we are low and we see what Christ has done in coming and identifying with us as the great prophet, priest, and king, not merely providing food for a little while, but becoming the bread of life that never fails, not merely resuscitating, but raising us to new life by His death on the cross and His glorious resurrection. When we see that and we see ourselves in that great promise and great story, our boasting is in the Lord. Our worship increases and expands and brings honor and praise to the Lord. I mentioned earlier that being of low estate is not a matter of subjective self-perception. Well, the same can be said of being righteous. 
It's not a matter of subjective self-perception. You may, in trusting and giving yourself to Jesus Christ by faith alone, you may sometimes not feel the security and comfort of your salvation. You may not feel the joy of your salvation. But that doesn't make it untrue. Faith is clinging to the promise that is objective and fixed and sure, even when our hearts are weak and low. The guilt is gone because of Jesus' work. The shame is removed, all because of the work of Jesus Christ, and all are received by Him with faith like this widow, simple, humble, genuine faith that God's Word is true. The gospel of Christ not only brings comfort, but it brings us praise. As our closing hymn says, I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death, and His resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how Your Spirit brings it to life. And we pray now that You would shape and mold and fashion us by it, that we may walk in godliness. And Father, I pray for this church, for Park City's Presbyterian Church, even as we think about this physical building, may the brightness and light and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ shine from us as a light on a hill, as a body, and as families, as individuals, May we be quick to boast of Jesus Christ to all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.